Welcome to season four of Three Associating. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. And soon. Three Associating is a podcast that goes behind the door of therapists working in a relational psychoanalytic model. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. We're both therapists. And we're both supervisees of Jill. And I'm Jill, therapist and supervisor, and co-author with Jackie Winship of the book, The Talking Cure. While people might think that therapists have it all together, we don't. We get stuck, experience challenges, and have blind spots. This affects our work, and this is why we need ongoing supervision. This podcast peeks behind the closed doors of relational supervision and lets you know about the therapist's blind spots. Relational supervision complements the traditional focus on the patient by focusing on both patient and the therapist. In each episode, we bring a fictitious character to supervision with Jill. And I have no idea ahead of time which fictitious character I'm about to meet. And Rachel and I don't know which parts of ourselves we're about to encounter during our session with Jill. And while none of these patients are real, the relational dynamics are. Including the relational dynamics between the three of us. Now I spend my time making rhymes. Episode 1. The Therapist's Revenge. Trading porn for prayer cards. Hey Andy. How do you recognize a martyr? I don't know. How do you recognize a martyr? By their haunted look in the eyes of those who live with them. (laughs) So the patient I wanted to discuss today, let's call her Susan. She is 64 and she hasn't been coming for very long. Like I think it's only been about five or six sessions and I'm already struggling with her a lot. Okay. She initially started therapy as she experienced uh, her first panic attack a month before she contacted me. When I asked her more about what was happening for her at that time, uh, she told me that she was just really busy with volunteer work that she'd been doing with her church. She did mention later, though, that her youngest son, so she has four sons, um, but her youngest son had told her and her husband that he was gay. And she was quick to say that she didn't believe him and she was sure it was just a rebellious phase. I asked if he had a partner and she said that he'd been living with his best friend for five years (laughs) and her son is 32 and it seems to me it's unlikely um, that this five-year best friend relationship is A, just a friendship, Uh, and be just a phase. (laughs) Which church, if you don't mind me asking, if you know, Um, which denomination? She's Catholic. Catholic, okay. But yeah, I could see she didn't want to talk about this and I felt that like her avoidance was uh, pretty significant. So she presents as this sort of long-suffering martyr where everybody's let her down and no one ever lives up to her expectations. She describes like bending over backwards for her daughters-in-law who don't seem to acknowledge her benevolence. She says she cooks them dinner and they never appear grateful. Yet when I ask her why she continues to do this, she says, well, women these days don't know how to cook anymore and their poor husbands aren't getting proper home-cooked meals and if I don't do it, then I don't even want to think about like what my sons are going to be eating each night. So needless to say, this really grates on me. <laughs> <laughs> OK. 
can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> And she's so masochistic and passive aggressive and it not just grates on me, but it brings out this kind of sadistic part of me in response. Mm -hmm. And so far, Mm -hmm. I think I've got it under wraps, but I notice myself getting quite a lot of delight and enjoyment (laughs) about imagining the things that I wish I could say to her in response to some of the things that she says. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like... She was surprised when I brought up my cancellation fee for a session she didn't attend because she got caught up helping her priest, the priest at her church. She was clearly annoyed about this, but when I invited her to directly share her feelings about it, she said that, um, of course, she couldn't imagine ever charging a fee based on another person's misfortunes herself, um, but I probably have small mouths to feed and a roof to put over their heads. <laughs> And then I imagine myself saying to her, oh, no, I feed my kids Vegemite toast each night because I'm saving up for a boob job. You know, like, (laughs) I didn't say that. (laughs) And it's not true. (laughs) Anyway, last week she texts me to tell me that she'd left some holy cards in my reception area on her way out of her appointment. And I could tell uh, my other patients that they could take them and enjoy them. And then this part of me wants to write back and say, oh, my patients love the holy cards and uh, they left her some porn in return to say thank you and they really hope that she enjoys that too. (laughs) Again, just to reiterate, I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Rach, you seem to need to convince me of that. (laughs) No, but I really, I get a lot of pleasure in thinking about this. Anyway... What do you think's happening here? Do you think any of this could be useful? And I, how do I talk to her about these fucking holy cards? <laughs> what to do? Mm. Well, look, it is triggering. I can hear that. And you are quite triggered by many things that I think would be difficult, actually, because there's something about the holy cards, which I do find myself wanting to laugh both at your reaction, but it is also an assumption that others would like to enjoy them, and others may not like to enjoy them. So the first things that that I think about is the sort of one-person psychology nature of it, yeah, And I think I probably would use that as my access point. I mean, there are many access points here because the sons and the daughter-in-laws and, you know, we could speculate around a whole lot of things that might be going on there. But um, And also the cancellation fee is something I think I would also use. So there are two kind of access points there, I feel, which one can productively using the transference. I think her relationship with the daughter-in-laws and the sons, I certainly don't think at this point would be too fruitful. But uh, the cards I might take up with her Mm. and say to her, you know, I, I think you were trying to be kind in leaving those cards. But um, that's a thing, Joe. I don't think it's kind, <laughs> and so I find it. I it feels like it's her need wrapped up as though it's for someone else. A hundred percent. I agree yeah. with you. That's why I said I know you were uh, thinking okay, good. that yeah, you okay, good, were good, good. kind. <laughs> 
Yes, I, like, I can't say that. I don't think it's kind. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're so activated. That's quite hard to actually even hear me. But okay, I'll I'll try again. I will. But I I, I, I hear think, you now. Yes, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. would I would want to say, look, you know, those cards. I think that you were thinking that you know others would enjoy it and were being kind. But, you know, I wonder what or who you think might be in my waiting room. What patients, obviously you don't know who the patients are, but are you feeling that the patients are Christian or are you feeling that they perhaps are in need of salvation or what actually is your thought about who might be there to receive these cards? Mm. She's not going to give you a straight answer, I'm pretty sure of that. But I'm still wanting to draw her attention to the imposition of something on the other, but without getting into a confrontation. I want to invite her into a fantasy. Mm. I think it will be hard for her to have that fantasy because I think she likes to stay in the kind of black and white concrete. That's obviously my fantasy about her, but um, I still nevertheless would extend the invitation and mm. let's see what she says mm-hmm. and let's see what kind of patients she thinks are going to be in that room to receive those cards. Yeah, it's interesting because then the my response about, oh, my patients left some porn for you is is trying to do the same thing, right? Like it's, it's, sure. it's in a way now that you're saying this is some way designed to get her to think that they're not all like her, right? And um, yeah. 100%. Yeah. But where I think you're getting caught is that what you've acknowledged totally is that she imposes something which actually I find quite uh, shocking would be much too strong a word, but I certainly find something quite startling that Mm. somebody would just dump that or leave that in your (laughs) consulting room. And I think you vengefully want to (laughs) confront and uh, shock her by the porn cards, which um, (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't leave a stack of them in the waiting room just before she came in, but um, (laughs) nevertheless... I think you're getting caught. (laughs) Yes, so you're right in saying, look, well, in a sense, by doing that, uh, I am actually indicating to her difference, otherness, the things that she really, really, I would imagine. Well, we know she struggles with around Mm. the son and all of that, the daughter-in-laws too. But you're wanting to go to an action. Mm. And I think that is a parallel process because I think she finds it quite hard to think and she goes to an action to try to get everybody to be like her. She can't think about the meaning of her action. So I think in your desired outcome, which is to let her know there's otherness, we're on the same page. But we're And I know that you wouldn't do it, but the point is the fantasy goes to an action and I think that's being caught in her modus operandi so it's interesting counter-transference material so I might try to explore that, she will block you and stonewall you, I predict but nevertheless (laughs) What do I do when she does that, just let it go do you think or keep chipping away? Give me in your imagination what she might say if I were to say to her what I've said to you let me think. I don't think she would own the salvation thing. I think that 
that's probably more close to what I imagine the truth is, is that she's trying to save mm. everyone else. Well, save lost souls, particularly yeah. gay souls, but anyway. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's like some superiority or something that like, you know, or, yeah, something around that. But I think she would come back with something along the lines of, oh, I was just trying to be helpful. Um, and yeah, I wonder if she would say something like, she would indicate that she couldn't imagine that why someone wouldn't like those cards or why they wouldn't enjoy them in the same way that mm -hmm. she might. Or so, uh, Yeah. Okay, so if she were to say that to me, because mm -hmm. you're asking me what I would say, I, will, I might respond and say, well, sometimes it is difficult to imagine that a person has a very opposite response to you, that they may not enjoy them. So I think what I'm trying to get at, uh, what did we call her? Just Susan. Susan. So I, I'd say what I'm trying to get at, Susan, is sometimes the intention we have and the effect it has are not the same. Mm. So you might intend to leave it there for people to enjoy, but the effect is that people might uh, respond negatively because they think differently to you. And, you know, that's what I'm sort of exploring with you. How do we feel when other people think very, very differently to us? And it happens all the time. Mm. So I think if you're asking me how mm, it go, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that's how it go. I might myself be actually prepared to give her the conscious intention to be helpful or kind or whatever, I might think that there are other unconscious intentions, but you've got to work close to where the patient is, and mm. that would be very far from her thought, mm. that there was something superior in it, or she's the saviour and the others are being saved and all of that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, Rach. Yeah, it does. I wonder, like I, I was trying to imagine being Susan when you were saying that and mm. I sort of um, imagine that she might go to something like, oh, so I shouldn't have done that or that was, you know, what you're saying, she it's may, negative. She or, may, she may you know, well yeah. have. Yeah. And I would say, you know, Susan, I know we kind of quickly want to go to what I should or shouldn't have done and undo something or not do it, but... I'm much more curious and interested in thinking through the why. You know what what might have happened if you'd done that because it is a waiting room and there are going to be varied people. So I'm much more interested in that question. She might then say, "Oh, it's really relevant. I don't know why I'll be talking." Which case I'll say, "Well, we don't have to. We can pass on." But you've mm -hmm. thrown out a few seeds, and they'll either. I mean, they're not going to immediately be productive, but that's okay. Mm. And then I think I would persist in the transference when she says, um, you know, well, I couldn't imagine, you know, benefiting from someone's misfortune, but you've got a lot of mouths to feed. Mm. And I would say to her, well, you know, sometimes... If we can't look after ourselves, mm. things can become very difficult. And what I hear in you, Susan, is that you sort of feel compelled to cook for the other, to do this for the other, to do that for the other, which in one way can give us satisfaction because we are being altruistic and altruism has satisfaction. 
but in another way it's got certain disadvantages. So no, I charge a cancellation fee, not necessarily because I have all the mouths to feed, but it's actually part of my contract with you and it's also part of a kind of self-care for Mm me. And let's see how she reacts to that. She'd probably be very cross with you because we envy the other person's ability to look after themselves when we can't. So she might be very cross. Of course, she looks after other hidden needs, but in many ways... Um, it's indirect, yeah. I wonder if... She, I, I, I just imagining that she would experience self-care as selfish or, yeah, something like like that. Well, yeah. she absolutely would. And, I mean, you just slipped in there the word indirect, so I just want to mm, bring it yeah. out because I think it's absolutely accurate. And, yes, it has to be indirect if you then think it's selfish or, you know, your kind of philosophy, because she has got a Catholic philosophy, is that you should be self-sacrificing, then you actually up against. And I say up against because she's clearly having panic attacks and not really feeling that great and uh, presumably flowing from the sun and the gayness, which now cuts across the philosophy. So I think if I were to just give a brief summary of the session Mm -hmm. is that She's bringing her philosophy into the session. Mm-hmm. The philosophy, obviously, for all of us, serves hidden needs. But what is at the basis of the panic attack, from what we can gather, is a conflict between what is happening in the reality, the external world, and the philosophy. So I would feel quite fruitful in entering that terrain as her philosophy enters the consulting room. Mm. So, I mean, we're we're sort of close-ish to the end range, but I I really feel that, you know, the transference is the transference is the transference. And by that I mean that we do, in indirect ways and direct ways sometimes, bring the, the central issue into the room. And the central issue, it seems, around the panic attacks, which started with the son mm-hmm. declaring that he was gay, which would cut across her beliefs uh, within the Catholic Church. I also imagine there's a fear around what people would think. Like, um, yes. I think that there's something about yes. what if the church finds out or, you know... I think you're spot on, which is why I want to have an imaginative thing about what would the people in the waiting room Mm. think about this, because you're trying to get it into a two-person, into difference, into that not everyone might see the sun in the same way, but that's far down the track. Yeah, it's getting how to mentalize. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, I'm in touch with how much more empathic. <laughs> no, but that having said, I mean, I did have a reaction in myself because mm-hmm. there's no doubt about the fact that it's immensely provocative. Mm. I mean, would I, if I was sitting in the session, feel provoked? I'm sure I would feel provoked. Yeah. But then the whole question is what is being provoked and how can I use it as the counter-transference data? Because your thought about the pornographic cards... As we thought about it together, it was clear that was counter-transference data saying, I need somehow to help you to move to a two-person psychology 
and to the fact that otherness is something we all have to deal with. So it was good. Yeah, it was something useful. Yeah, and in the mm-hmm. same way, I'm trying to be provocative, like that. Correct. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Because, and that's where I say the countertransference data was helpful, mm. but then the mode went to an action and provocation, which was mirroring. It's like the currency that we're in. Yes, is, the currency. Uh, exactly. Provocation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah which is kind of interesting because she sets that and then I follow, which is a <laughs> difference and sameness at the same time, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you ready to end? I am. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Rach. Now we're going to reflect together on what happened in the session. We identify the problem that we took into the supervision, what we call the dilemma, and we identify what we're taking out of the session, the distillation. We also explore the blind spots that emerged. Blind spots include bright spots and dark spots. A bright spot is when we are blinded to the overall picture and can only see a sliver of what is occurring in ourselves and in the interaction. A dark spot is when the issues are more completely out of sight. So Rach, what was your dilemma going into the session? I think my dilemma was exactly how depraved or what to what lengths do I need to go to to get through to this woman? <laughs> <laughs> and the distillation? That rather than go to extremes, I needed to be able to pause and think and to help her think rather than act or act out. And Jill, the blind spots, what do you think was the bright spot? Well, I think I'll just underline what Rach said, that I think she was so provoked by Susan's difficulty in thinking and tolerating otherness, including Rach's otherness, that she found it hard to think in the session and instead engaged in fantasies which were delightful to her about acting out (laughs) and taking revenge. Uh And the dark spot? And the dark spot is, I think, that underneath the fantasy, Rach was perhaps not aware that she was mirroring the patient's um, tendency toward acting out rather than thinking. Mm. In fantasy, but Rach was very aware that it was in fantasy. Mm. And the learning points for you, Rach? Well, that my countertransference was useful, even though it was extreme. And my second learning point was that, um, well, Jill, you helped me conceptualize uh, that what I was encountering in Susan was a failure to mentalize, and that's where the work is. And Jill, what were the teaching points for you? Well, I think that it's helpful to explore the therapist's fantasy and supervision if it comes into the supervision fully and to use it as a source of data to be mined rather than to be repressed. And then I think that a second teaching point for me is how frequently we muddle up intention and effect, especially actually as therapists in the concept of projective identification. Because sometimes if we feel attacked by the patient, we go quickly to assume that they intended it Mm. when they may or may not have intended it. And you can't just read off intention from the effect that it produces in you or oneself. And then my third point is that that which cannot be thought about will manifest either through an enactment or a symptom. So the enactment in Rachel's fantasy and in the patient's actual enactment happened. But I think beyond this, Susan's inability to think about her son's gayness in conjunction with her own 
Catholicism and hold both at the same time, translated into free-floating anxiety and the panic attack that brought her to therapy in the first place. So, Joe, in the session, I mentioned that you sounded more empathic than, uh, than what I was feeling. I often feel bad when I can't find sufficient empathy for a patient, and that never seems to help. Um, what do you think is more helpful? Well, the short answer is to endorse what you said. It really doesn't help to go to judgment on oneself. I think that uh, a short answer is when you don't feel empathy to try and think about why not and not go to the fact that it's necessarily a failure in you. There are some things that people do that most people would find provocative. I think a lot of people would find Susan provocative because she really doesn't have a concept of otherness, including your otherness, so you can feel quite annihilated by that. But while we don't need to feel bad or to feel a failure, we still have to take some responsibility for working out what it is that's implicated in the lack of empathy. And the outcome of this is not actually to produce or manufacture feelings of empathy because you can't feel what you don't feel. But you still have a responsibility for understanding what the lack is about trying to think about it, including what the patient may be doing that produces this effect in you, and trying to communicate with the patient about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I think. And that's why we need to continue to communicate with each other through three One associating. One is the number. One is the loneliest. You've been listening to Three Associating, a podcast on relational psychoanalytic supervision with Jill, Rachel, and myself, Andy. If you enjoy this podcast, a great way to support us that will help us to continue to make new content is to leave a rating or give us a review on the platform that you listen to this podcast on. Audio produced by Jared Young. Theme song performed by Bad Pony. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.